welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Sacred Celluloid, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why are we so attracted to these sorts of stories? We're joined today by Catherine Gwyther to talk about June. Kat is a PhD researcher in Hebrew Bible at the University of Leeds, working on Utopia and Exodus. She's interested in how utopian literature and science fiction and the related criticism can enrich our understanding of biblical texts and their reception. Welcome, Kat. Thank you for having me. To get a sense of your sci-fi taste, Kat, we're going to ask a starter question. If you could have any sci-fi technology at your disposal right now, what would it be? Does it have to be one that's in a book, or can I make one up on the spot? Book, movie, TV show, whatever. This is going to sound really dystopian then, but something like Soylent Green, not the humans. Right, do go on. Imagine the technology that either plans out your meals for you, or does all of like your household labour for you, as it were. A world in which that exists, because... Coming to the end of my PhD, that is something that I am loathing to do. That's Rosie on the Jetsons. I don't know that reference, but perfect. The Jetsons is a cartoon, and Rosie is a robot maid, and she does all the cooking and cleaning. It is one of the difficulties of being human that I hadn't anticipated for. Turning to our topic of conversation, when did you first encounter June? So I read the book originally when I was 14, But it was one of those books that was in my school library. And I remember it being kind of advertised towards the boys. And I'm just stubborn. And I was like, oh, I'm going to read that because I was a great reader, reading a lot and reading big books. I had no idea what any of them were about, but I would class myself as like a big book reader and June was that. So I read it then. Didn't touch it for nearly 10 years. Film comes out and I was just like, right, I'm going to see that because... It has all my kind of favourite things. It's a big sci-fi epic. The soundtrack is fantastic. Um, So I went to see it at the cinema and loved it um, and came out of it with a list of things in my head that I immediately wrote down in a notes app of all the kind of biblical imagery um, and references to the Bible. I think this is just the downside of being someone that is interested in biblical themes and is aware of how kind of pervasive they are in culture. Came out, wrote all the Bible themes down and since then have been dying have someone to talk to about them in detail so thank you for having me well it sounds like we're going to be in for a really rich discussion where you'll get to make use of all of those notes but before we jump into it let's do our movie synopsis there's something happening to me there's something awakening in my mind i can't control it what did you see there's a crusade coming Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve and released in 2021, is the first of a two-part adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel of the same name. Set in the very distant future, in which human civilization has abandoned Earth for far-flung planets across the galaxy, the film follows Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet, as his family, the noble house Atreides, is attacked by the rival house Harkonnen in a power play for control of the desert planet Arrakis. 
Although Arrakis is a desolate and inhospitable planet, it is also the sole source of a key commodity, spice, that enables space travel. In an article for the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, Charles Stang writes that Dune is a vision of our future in which the arc of history bends not toward justice, but toward power. There is a lot more going on in this film than this little synopsis can cover, probably as it's largely exposition for the planned second part. But to kick us off, Kat, can you tell us a little bit more about our protagonist, Paul Atreides? Who is he and why is he important? So when we first get introduced to Paul, he's kind of set up as the the unwilling heir of, of this ducal throne um, to Duke Leto in the House of Atreides. Part of his kind of fir- our first introduction to him before we get into the real meat of the film is him as this reluctant figure who doesn't want to become Duke or doesn't seem to want to become Duke. I think a really great scene that shows this is when Josh Brolin, Josh Brolin, him and Paul or Timothy Chalamet are having um, a fencing fight, and there's this kind of like real reluctance to accept that this is something that he has to do, that he has to prepare for this role. Um, and I think that links very nicely to, to themes of the chosen one a little bit later on. We then start to uncover a little bit more about Paul and that actually through his connections to his mother, Lady Jessica, uh, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who is always fantastic in everything she is in. We start to uncover that there's actually a bit more going on here and there's actually some connections to prophecies um, through the Bene Gesserit, but then also prophecies um, about a character that Paul is linked to um, or a messianic figure that Paul is linked to and we start to uncover that slowly through the film I I wouldn't say that the film really does justice to Paul's character it's much more as Katie said setting out the plot for the next two films I think Um, but we start to get hints at what Paul could be beyond just being this kind of ducal heir and becomes duke in the in the film we see I know you've set off right away with denoting how he's set up as the chosen figure uh, Mm -hmm. or the chosen one But Joe and I are in a bit of a disagreement about including Dune in the season at all, because I think Paul is far more of a savior figure than a chosen one, even though those two things overlap a lot. But Kat, you've mentioned that you think Paul is like Moses, which would put him squarely Mm -hmm. in the chosen one category. So could you talk a little bit more about why Paul is like Moses? Yeah, so I think kind of rolling it back to this chosen one imagery. I think Paul is the chosen one, air quotes around that, in two ways. I think he, one has that kind of Duke, royal, um, chosen one, and then does the tropes actually, I think, through that. But then also this religious messianic figure. And the reason I think that he's a bit like Moses is I think of the scene in Exodus 3, the burning bush, where Moses is told by God that he's going to be the one that's going to liberate the Israelites from Egyptian enslavement, that he's going to be the one to save them through God's guidance. Um, and there's this real reluctance of, I don't want to do this. This isn't like something that I feel that I can do. I'm not a Hebrew. I've been brought up Egyptian. This isn't who I am. This kind of dealing with this unfamiliarness, the task that he's been given. And then he slowly kind of becomes comes to accept it over the course of the next couple of chapters and um, he does what God tells him and he does take the Israelites out of Egypt um, but I think that kind of real reluctancy is something that I think the chosen one has this kind of I don't want to accept this role but I have to 
is something we see maybe not in religious texts as much, or maybe not what we associate with religious texts is kind of divine destiny. It's always meant to happen, but especially in sci-fi, um, which we then might relate with religious themes. So things like um, Star Wars with Luke, Katniss in The Hunger Games, Harry Potter and Harry Potter, um, but this sort of reluctant nature to chosen being chosen, being the chosen one, fulfilling that destiny, becoming the person that they're proclaimed to be. And I think Paul actually really demonstrates that quite well in a way that I find a lot of similarity with Moses. And I think part of what struck me really well with Moses um, and Paul is that great scene when uh, Paul's on Arrakis for the first time and he touches the ground, he touches the spice um, and he has these visions associated with it. And it's a very kind of material, sacred moment, actually, I would, I would go as far to say that this real feeling of being connected to this land um, and connected to this spice but it really reminds me or gave me or evoked the kind of same feeling I had when Moses steps on sacred ground for the first time um, in Exodus 3 and while I'm probably not going to say that they're exactly the same or that Paul could be lap, like, mapped onto um, the Moses in Exodus 3 story but I think there are similar things going on there and also as a Hebrew Bible nerd I see that much more clearly than I see um, images of Jesus. But I would argue that Moses is there in Paul. So following on from your comparison with Moses, that makes me wonder maybe more broadly about how religion or the divine is portrayed in Dune. If we have God being the one who chooses Moses, we have this shadowy group in Dune, the Bene Gesserit, who seem to have their designs on Paul. So do you think there's some relationship going on in that parallel? Do you think the the kind of chosen one might collapse, considering it's the Bene Gesserit who seem to choose, but then also not really be into Paul? Yes. I think, though, there's not necessarily a clear-cut idea of kind of the divine and God in Dune in the same way that we might have in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, because we have kind of a lot of myths intertwined with each other. Um, in June, you don't just have kind of Benny Gesserit with, I'm absolutely not going to try and say what they call Paul. We'll put a clip of them saying it in the film in the audio now. There'll be a complete glossary on our website. And then also the kind of Fremen mythology and Messianic figure that's going alongside this. So I think that it's less clear who the kind of, quote-unquote divine being is or who, who the the god figure is because there's this kind of blending of myth but they think that they definitely play a creator's role in it but I think that actually in terms of god to Moses other figures play that role quite well Yahweh acts as a guide to Moses as of encouraging him actually you can fulfill your role you can do this this is what you've been brought for look at the connection that you've got from your family and I think that Paul gets that from other characters in the film. So he doesn't just have that from the Benny Jesser. It's actually they're kind of horrible to him. They don't really take a caring figure. So they might have been the creator role and actually set in motion what makes Paul become the chosen one, the messianic figure or whatever. But actually the caring side of making sure that he becomes the chosen one in sort of emotional maturity, accepting his fate is actually fulfilled by other characters. So you have things like people like Duncan Idaho, which... I will suggest might be playing a character similar to God, but might be doing some of that work in sort of preparing him to become the Duke. Gurney Halleck, he is kind of acting a bit like that. His mum is a really nurturing role in terms of making him practice, putting the work to become, um, that makes Paul the chosen one. 
Can we just explain really briefly what the Bene Gesserit are? And then I want to come back and ask a question. So the Bene Gesserit in the film, we aren't really told much about them. They're this kind of secret order who we presume are religious, not necessarily because we know about their theology, their gods, their um, kind of doctrine, but because of their dress, there's actually, I feel like quite a lot of religious coding that's associated with them. They wear almost what we might call habits. They look like Catholic nuns. They draw on quite a bit of, I think, what we expect as, as harsh, strict and quite conservative religious figures but we're not actually told anything about what the order is sort of beyond they have this breeding program that lady jessica is part of lady jessica is paul trey's mum and she is part of the benny jesserets and this breeding program she was meant to produce a daughter she gives later a son they're unhappy with her that's kind of all we know about them but the idea that paul is meant to fulfill a prophecy or a promise that they have towards this messianic figure that is going to guide them on the way the details of this are actually left really sparse in the first film. We're introduced very little to who these people are, but they seem to be quite ominous. We see Paul ha- go through this test where Lady Jessica's crying outside the room. Paul is in extreme amounts of distress and pain while he's going through this. We're not encountering the Bene Gesserit as nice, lovely people, but I think that's equally important. But we, yeah, we, we don't really know a lot about them. Yeah, I think you're entirely right that we understand them as a religious order through the costuming, which Mm -hmm. I think also crosses a little bit Catholic nun with a burqa. So I think Mm -hmm. we get both of these things and there's quite a lot of Orientalism throughout, but I don't want to go off on that tangent. But one of the things that you said about how Lady Jessica Paul's mother is supposed to have produced a daughter, but produces a son Mm -hmm. instead. And that is not explained at all in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I had to look it up after and the Bene Gesserit have learned to control their bodily functions. And one of those things that they can control is their menstruation and ovulation. So I think it's through that, yes, Mm -hmm. that she's supposed to be able to self-determine that she's Mm -hmm. going to have a daughter and instead she has a son. And I think it's a little bit like if we imagine that the Virgin Mary, instead of having an angel come to her and tell her what's going to happen, she instead orchestrates giving Mm -hmm. birth to Jesus. So Lady Jessica has chosen, or she's attempting at least, to be the mother of this savior figure. See? Savior figure, not chosen one. (laughs) Um. So perhaps could we say that Lady Jessica is the chosen one of June, but she chooses herself for this order's role that they have laid out for someone, presumably for her daughter. So she is meant to be St. Anne and jumps the queue and becomes Mary. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's an interesting reading. I'm also really intrigued by the fact that this religious thing is so present in the visuals and in these expectations that different groups through the film have of a different sort of savior figure articulated under different names and with different traditions attached. But we never hear any mention of any divine. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of mention of like belief and religion but there isn't an association with any thing what is the religion what what is the belief beyond a desire for some sort of messianic type figure is there one or is that in itself is the absence of an articulated divine figure part of the commentary i see the absence of the divine actually one of the strengths of the film because one thing that i really appreciate the film just as you mentioned is this kind of multiplicity of 
stories or myths or prophecies about a messianic figure, a chosen one. And what that leads to is this really nice blending of culture and this layered story and layered background that we get rather than saying that there is kind of one right divine that all exists next to each other. And there's not necessarily that war around well, my God's right, yours is wrong. There's That's almost taken out the question, but rather there's this layered understanding that he's all of these things at once. That he's both the, 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 the one that will lead the way for the Bene Gesserit, but he's also um, the Lizan al-Gaib. And that he can exist in those roles quite happily without this God dictating that. I also wonder, actually, whether the next films will explore that more as Dune starts to explore the idea of a holy war that is coming. Uh, We know that actually from Paul's visions in this film that there is going to be a holy war. I think that one of the big things the next few films are going to have, the next two films at least are going to have to deal with is what is the religion of Dune? So you raised the question of Paul's dreams and this future holy war. So I think this tips over nicely into perhaps the role of dreams in the film which opens with this rather enigmatic line about dreams being messages from the deep. And then throughout the film, Paul is often depicted waking from dreams and the world around him seems to have changed after he wakes up. There's also this line about him dreaming things that are going to happen. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? Not exactly. So throughout the film, we're shown repeatedly these potential futures, but almost every time we reach them in the film's narrative, Paul seems to do something slightly different. So could this dreaming, the dreamer who fashions reality through that be related to this theme of Chosen One? So this is the thing is that I think the visions really add to our understanding of Paul's character as a religious figure, as someone that kind of prophesizes, maybe a bit like Nostradamus, as someone that has the capacity to control or see the future. But they don't actually think they add to him being the quote unquote chosen one. I think the use of dreams probably associates it with much more of the genre of science fiction which uses dreams and visions quite a lot to imagine or to to start to break open what could happen it's it's, it's a really good narrative tool to to open questions about how could the future look so here i'm thinking about uh, a book the lake of heaven by ursula Le Guin, which is fantastic very sure everyone should read it but it's a sci-fi novel where this character uh, George Orr has dreams and the dreams alter the world around him it's very kind of classic utopian science fiction but it's set in a normal world I think it's set in Portland Oregon but what this dreaming seems to last do and it explores other kind of formal problems and characteristics of utopian literature more broadly but what the novel does is it posits a, a question what would the world look like with x billion people in it it allows that to come to life and then examines the problems of that and how do we fix that and what's the, the details there. So I wonder actually, is other dreams much more a science fiction genre? Something that we might associate with that and then we actually read the religion into it or whether, yes, it is part of the science fiction genre, but actually it helps to recognise Paul as a religious figure because of the emphasis on dreaming in we see in other religious characters. So I'm not sure that I would necessarily label it as part of him being a chosen one, but I definitely think that it adds to our understanding of him as a religious figure and someone that is chosen because it's quite special of him to be having these dreams and visions. No other character seems to have them in the same way that he does. 
I want to pick up on something that's been mentioned a few times in some of these answers, but we haven't really discussed yet, which is the Fremen. And the Fremen are the group of people that actually live on Arrakis, which is a desert planet. So their living there takes a certain set of skills and accommodations. They've learned how to survive in this environment in a way that other people haven't. And they have their own, let's say, mythologies and their own expectations of their own savior figure that seems to be sort of close to the Bene Gesserit, but not quite the same. And because they are in this desert world, and I think a lot of how, I mean, certainly how they're visualized in the film, but I think also from, I haven't read the book, but from a lot of the discourse around the book, is that they are based on Arabic people and the way that much of North Africa and the Middle East has been subjected to colonialization and commodification of the land for the resources. And that's what's happening to the Fremen because spice is found only on this planet. And spice also happens to be sacred to them. So I'd like to ask you if you could talk a little bit more about how the sci-fi genre allows us to think about these big themes of colonization and commodification of resources. So there's, you know, there's clearly that discourse going on in a sci-fi context. But beyond that, can we also take that back into thinking about biblical texts? So it, it works really well on a narrative level. So you have Moses or Joshua, we might read as Paul leading the Israelites or the chosen Fremen to this promised land or paradise in the Fremen myth. And that land's been given to them by a religious figure or through religious faith. As we see in June, we don't know what that figure is, what that looks like. But I think also there's a benefit in reading it this way. I think it allows us to deal with the kind of underlying plot line that's going on in Genesis to Joshua that we don't always pick up on as we read it first. We read it as this fulfillment of a promise. And we might read that in June as this kind of fulfillment of a messianic or chosen destiny. But actually what's going on here is a theme of kind of conquest, colonization, systematic eradication of the population or systematic exploitation of resources in that land. We might not really think about that in the Hebrew Bible. We think more about covenant, promise, obedience, worship, all associated with the deity. But actually what's going on under that is this land ideology that is centered around conquest and colonization. And that really maps on to how we understand Dune. In Dune, it's made much clearer because we have this more obvious way in which Dune, the land in Dune is kind of commodified and exploited or that it's kind of more obviously colonized. We have the big bad emperor purposely setting people into this land. There's a kind of big, scary industrialization aspect of it. We see the big machines that are extracting spice on a mass level. Commodification, exploitation, conquest, colonization is much easier to see in June because it's probably in ways that we recognize it, but also just it's just much more explicit. But I think actually reading that into the Bible, exploring Genesis to Joshua, with actually does that follow a June kind of narrative? There are elements and themes going on there that I think really speak and highlight aspects of the Bible and the Hebrew Bible especially that we might not have picked up on before or that we might just be willing to ignore. But definitely when I was watching the film, this kind of desert land, or even the, even the small references that probably mean nothing to an average viewer, but anyone that's kind of familiar with, with the Bible. Um, so I think of when Paul is nearly an assassination attempt is put on Paul with that little gnat, flying gnat thing. And the spies are found. I think of Numbers 13 when the spies are sent into the land of Canaan. And I think Dune 
perhaps highlight some of the nefarious elements of the Bible a little bit more clearly because it's easier to see good and bad in something that doesn't exist versus something that holds such cultural capital. You've talked a lot about this kind of promised land, the land of milk and honey, or maybe rather the land of worms and spice. But some of these ideas ring true with this concept of utopia, and you've done quite a bit of work on utopia in the Bible. So can we ask about how we might think about Dune and utopia, or how does Dune help us think about ideas of utopia? I want to kind of move away from our assumption of utopia as a idyllic or paradisical place. And I think that's one of the points that I make in my own research is that utopia comes with a lot of bad things as well. And I think that's what Dune deals with really well in that Paul isn't a great messianic figure. There's lots of moral ambiguity around who Paul is, what his mission or destiny is whether he's just actually going to become like a reiteration. We get lots of mentions of jihad, a holy war that's coming. Um, I should mention that there's actually a lot of like Islamic references throughout the film that are often layered with maybe Christian or a Jewish myth is a real blending of religion here. But actually the moral ambiguity in, in this narrative in, in June is one of the best things about it. It makes it interesting in the rich film to, to watch. Nobody really wants to watch a, a plot where you can predict what's going to happen five minutes in. But actually, that's what speaks to the concept of utopia for me the most, is that utopia has a moral ambiguity about it that we often don't recognise. And I think for me, that's probably where it can speak to utopia. I wouldn't say that Dune is a utopian film. I think that's going to be a different topic. Um, but there are themes, perhaps, that we associate with uh, utopian literature. So Lake of Heaven being a utopian piece, and then the kind of crossover between that with the visions and dreaming that we see in Dune. I think it comes back to the question of how do you understand utopia, right? Is it a subgenre of science fiction? Is it a separate genre on its own? How do we deal with that? But moral ambiguity in both is actually something that's really important because I think it asks interesting questions about the character, the category of chosen one, if that's how we're going to classify Paul. And it actually brings into question lots of problems with the category of utopia itself. Is utopia always good? Is a chosen one always good? So I think there's lots of parallels there. I'd like to have us jump back a little to our discussion of the Fremen, because it occurs to me that we haven't discussed the suit that they wear and the way that this picks up on the Chosen One imagery with Paul. Yeah, so the the Fremen have this these incredible costumes. All the costumes are amazing. And they have this kind of oxygen or breathing tube that looks like an oxygen mask that you would wear at a hospital, but it's black. Prevent them becoming high from all the spice, I presume. And they have these suits that, that protect them. And I didn't pay enough attention <laughs> um, what these suits are made of, how exactly they work. But one of the best bits in the film, and one of the ways that we're told that Paul is special, that Paul is different or he might be becoming someone that we should pay attention to, is that he knows how to put these suits on. There's a scene where um, the people that are going on to Arrakis, so uh, this point is Leto, it's Paul, it's Josh Brolin's character. Gurney Halleck. Gurney and Halleck. Liet Kynes. Liet Kynes. They're all coming onto Arrakis and they are getting dressed up in these suits. And The judge of the chains, The judge of Liet the chains. Leah Kynes is instructing them on how to put this suit on and Paul's already put his shoes on. There's something so small about that detail and is so important. It's Paul has this almost innate knowledge about from in culture 
or their customs or something that he already knows how to put and it's noted by one of the other characters right who's surprised that he doesn't need to have his suit checked and there's nothing else said like nothing else nothing else special about paul apart from he can put his shoes on it's such a small detail that communicates so much about paul being special and chosen or having at least some connection to the fremen we infer that it is this kind of innate knowledge about the Fremen and their their cultures. Another thing that's going on in the still suit scene, which is really not apparent in the film, because I quite like to think that there is some genuineness to the mystical things that are going on, and that June isn't simply powerful people and groups are making all these kind of religious things happen. I think that the film nicely doesn't go into that too far. Paul has visions of the future and the kind of explanation around him wearing the steel suit rights and knowing how they're meant to go on, it just feels right, is because he's been dreaming about him in the future regularly wearing the steel suits as a Fremen. So there's this kind of like, he's got some insider special knowledge, he doesn't really make too many bones about it, but it's because he has this foresight through his use of the drug Spice that he is a and his kind of breeding program from the Bene Gesserit that he's able to present himself as the this messianic figure and the Bene Gesserit are planting these things as well so the Missonoria Protectorate or whatever they're called has this whole program of spreading these kind of sayings like you know the mother and the son will come he will know your ways as if born to them all these other kind of things this is a maker, all the things that essentially most of Jessica's interactions with Fremen. She's running from scripts that she's essentially had to learn that the Bene Gesserit have put ahead. They've kind of planted these religious traditions so that the Bene Gesserit can kind of go anywhere and slot into these important positions on any planet. So that's all in the background in the books. But anyway, it's not in the film. It was in the film some, and I'm. this is very much part of like where I saw savior stuff. So the mm. fact that like prophecy in the Hebrew Bible is written as if it's foretelling something in the future, but it's actually written after something has happened. I was just going to insert like ex prophecies. And have I written a lot about that in Utopia in my thesis? Absolutely. But then when you get to the New Testament... Now they're prophecies that have existed in the culture for a while and they're considered differently. And so they're used to fill in information about Jesus or to demonstrate that Jesus is who was prophesied. And so I think that is very similar to what's going on with Paul, where a foundation is being laid based on prophecies. And then those prophecies are being mined in order to demonstrate that he is who was foretold in the prophecy, the sort of circular thing that you get with Jesus. That is so well put. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Okay. (laughs) I agree. I have nothing to add to that. If we are classifying Paul as a chosen one figure, do you think Dune is doing something interesting with the chosen one trope? Is that moral ambiguity something that is interesting to Dune? I would say... Personally, we can find moral ambiguity in a lot of different chosen one figures. So maybe that's not the thing where something interesting is happening. There seems to be like, what I found most interesting is that it's not only a religious chosen one or there's coming back, like I said at the beginning, this dual narrative of chosen one that's going on is that we see Paul kind of questioning his 
kind of figure as opposition, as the, the heir to the House of Atreides. But I think also that helps him then question or establish himself as the chosen one in other ways. So I think that actually one's a foil for the other. And I think that that's something that I don't haven't necessarily seen um, in a lot of films that I probably associate with chosen one imagery. So thinking of Katniss in The Hunger Games, The Maze Runner, films like that. I think that the narrative is really clever in that it uses this kind of less religious idea of the chosen one, right? It's this hereditary chosen one. You were born by birth. You were chosen to become the next in line. But actually that helps explore the idea of the chosen one in other ways. So his doubting of that lends to the doubting of the other. And I think that that's probably the most interesting thing that I found throughout was that actually we got the first hints of Paul being the chosen one, not because he was we've been told that he's a religious figure. We haven't really been told that actually so far in, in, in June. We've kind of got hints, but nobody's come out right and said, no, you are this person. There's lots of, they think of you as, you are seen as, not Paul saying, I'm the one that's going to lead the way. There's none of that. But what you have is that kind of side-by-side narrative of him accepting his fate as the, the Duke of the House of Atreides. And then you might see, or you kind of predict that he, he will be accepting his fate as the chosen one. And because those narratives have gone side by side in the film. And that's what I found really interesting about it. I think also the lack of divine is probably also really interesting because of the appearance of those, or the kind of fracturing of that divine role into lots of different characters throughout it. But definitely, yeah, the, the dual role of the chosen one. So it seems basically like we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about from the second Dune movie. Absolutely. I think if the second June movie does not give you a fully like rundown of this is the theology, this is how it's running, this is Paul kind of having Yahweh and the burning bush, I am who I am moment, then I think we're in trouble because something needs to happen for this to kind of move forward. It's been so great having you with us today. But before we let you go, we'd love for you to pitch us a pairing. This can be anything. Anything at all that you would pair with June. A drink, a food, another movie, a book, an article, a piece of music. The sky is truly the limit. Oh, so I'm, I know the sky is the limit and sci-fi should allow us to think big and dream the impossible, but I've gone incredibly boring. I have two recommendations and one I've already mentioned. If you're interested in like academic science fiction, how do you read the Bible with science fiction? I can't recommend enough a book called Novel Histories by Roland Bohr, which came out in like 1997. It's fantastic, but it's about why we can and we should read the Bible of science fiction. It deals with metacritical ideas. And it's ultimately like this innovative approach to biblical hermeneutics. It's been really important for me, but it's really playful. And it thinks much more expansively about religion and the Bible and what sci-fi and utopian literature can say to the Bible beyond just kind of clear parallels. Or look, they're using a biblical image here. Non-academic or more exciting, everyone should go and read The Lake of Heaven by Esther Le Guin because it is the best sci-fi book. But also because it deals with that real like science fiction dreaming, science fiction imagination. I think it does that really, really well. And I think that if you were perhaps intrigued by the visions, I know that we've mentioned them quite a bit, but if you want to know about kind of predicting the future or what happens when you imagine the future in science fiction, that is the book. Links to those recommendations from Kat and anything else that we have discussed in this episode will be on our website. Thanks so much, Kat. This was a really fascinating conversation. I, well, I wouldn't have 
noted all the Hebrew Bible imagery, but as you talked about it, it all makes so much sense. And I really hope this has helped our listeners think a little bit more about the Bible as science fiction, something I would have never put together, but particularly in what you were saying about colonization. Yeah, I need to think about all these things again. It's been really enlightening. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style to Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMobPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening. Thank you.